0: Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, We'll be taking a stroll along the woodland path with naturalist author Winthrop Packard. We'll be witnessing the early arrival of butterflies and meandering through the light showers of April. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Just as in midsummer, the people of the little pasture and woodland hollows must envy those of the hilltop, their cool, breezy outlook, so in mid-April the thought must be reversed. For still, the wayfare between the north wind and the sun which began in February skirmishes and reached its Gettysburg in late March goes fitfully on, with Appomattox hardly in sight. The South is to win in this fratricidal struggle though, and in the summer millennium of peace and prosperity, the two forces will join hands and work for the good of the whole land. Already the warriors of the North are driven to the hilltops, where they still shout defiance and whence they rush in determined raids on the valleys below. It is a losing fight, for all day long the golden forces of the sun roll up the land and fill all the hollows and hold them in serene warmth and peace. However hard last night's frost, however stiff the gale overhead, I can always find bowl-shaped depressions where summer, already coaxes the winter-worn woodland. The first squatters in this land, whose presence antedates those people of record who held land by deeds and grants, seemed to have found and loved these little sun-warmed hollows too, for in them I find the only traces of this pioneer occupation. Records in ink on parchment of these pioneers a few, indeed, and these which they left on the land itself are but slight. Here a depression may show where a tiny cellar was dug, though no trace of stonework will be found. It was easier for the pioneer to frame his cellar wall of logs just as he built those of the house above it. You may find, by careful search, The worn path to the spring nearby, for that which is written on the earth itself, remains visible long after inscriptions on stone are gone. The wind and the sun, the frost and the rain, will erase the carving from your marble tablet. But the path across a plain, once worn deep and firm by many passing feet, will always show its tracing to the discerning eye. Perhaps a huge old apple tree stump may have lasted till now, even showing faint signs of life, and round about what was the immediate dooryard. The trees of wood may cluster, but they will hold back and leave some open space, as if they still respected invisible bounds set by the long departed human occupant. There seems to be many such sleepy hollows in my town, spots where dreams dwell, and the once-trodden earth clings tenaciously to the prints of long-vanished feet. Over their tops today, the north wind sings his war song, but his failing arrows fall to earth harmless, for golden troops of sunshine roll over the southern rim, and fill the space below with quivering delight. Just to walk about in this sunshine is a pleasure, and to sit in the pioneer's hollow land and let it flood your marrow is to be thrilled with a primal joy that is the first the race has to remember. It antedates the first man by unknown millions of years. The same sun touched with the same joy the first primordial cell. With the thrill, the one quivered into two, and thus came the origin of species. Today in such a hollow and under such a sun, the pageant of woodland life passed before me, much as it may have passed the pioneer as he sat on his log doorstep and rested perhaps from labours in the cornfield whose hills of earth still checker the level, sandy plain behind its hollow. Strange that the brawny, 17th-century adventurer should be but vanished dust and a dream, while the loam that he stirred with careless hoe holds the form that he gave it more than 200 years ago. Five or six times his cornfield has matured a forest, and the great trees have been cut down and carted away, and yet the corn hills linger. Thus easily does the clay outlast the potter. When I first marched into the tiny clearing, the place was silent, brown, and deserted. But that is the way of the woodland, and we soon learn to understand it. A certain aboriginal courtesy is required before you are allowed to become one of the company. Thus, among the Inuits, you enter an assembly and sit quietly a moment until one of those already present notices and speaks to you. In this way, you are admitted to fellowship. It is very bad taste for the newcomer to speak first. So at first I noticed only the brown of last year's grasses, the dead stems of the goldenrod and aster, of St. John's wort and Moonin. A tiny cloud slid across the face of the sun, and a scout of the north wind blew down the slope and chilled the golden glow of sunlight with which the hollow had seemed filled to the brim. Looking down into it from a sheltered spot on the rim, I had thought the place full of dreams of June. As I sat down in the shadow on the Pioneer's grass plot with the scouting north wind at my back, it was rather a recollection of November. A dead leaf, frightened by that scurrying wind, dashed down over the treetops and lighted a brown splash on the pale, dead grass. Then all in a moment, the cloud blew by. The north wind saw the enemy all about him in force and dashed over the rim of the hill, the amber warmth of the sun descending and filling the cup to the brim with the gentle ecstasy of returning summer. Descending and filling the cup to the brim With the gentle ecstasy of returning summer. In the still radiance, the brown leaf floated into the air again, hovered a moment before my very eyes, and lighted nearby on the grey bones of what had once been the pioneer's apple tree. Thus I received my introduction. I had been spoken to by one of the people of the place, Received my accolade, as it were, and was privileged to see clearly. For the brown leaf was not a brown leaf at all, but a hunter's butterfly. It is astonishing to find already so many forms of frail life stirring in the sun, though just a night or two ago the thermometer registered 10 degrees of frost and the ground was frozen solid the next morning. Here was my hunter's butterfly, a wee dab of pulpy cell that a touch of my finger could crush, born on the wings of gossamer fragileness that might be whipped to tatters by a wind-snapped twig, yet sailing serenely about, defying anything to harm him. The strange part of it is that he has been somewhere hereabouts all winter long. All about in the pasture are the frail ghosts of last year's cutweeds, on which as a caterpillar he fed, but it is six months at least since he cast off his chrysalis skin and emerged in his present form to face bitter winds and a constantly lowering temperature days of chilling rain, smothering snow, and ice that coated all things with an inch thick armour for days. All the wrecks that these might have caused him, he has in some mysterious fashion escaped, and here he is, as merry as a Grig. He did not seem to be hungry unless, like me, He was eager to devour the sunshine. He sat on the grey, weather-worn, fallen trunk of the ancient apple tree, his wings gently rising and falling, while I noted the beauty of his rich reds with their black and white markings and margin of black just tipped with a bluish tinge on the tips of the forewings. Then he closed them for a minute showing me the dark blurring of the underparts that had made me think him a dead leaf as he was blown over the ridge by the wind, though now I could note the blue acelli of the after-wings. It was only for a moment that he rested motionless thus, and it was hard not to think him a chip of ancient bark or a fragment of leaf. Then he flipped himself into the air and was off over the hill again, in a tremendous hurry. All butterflies get occasional aerograms and go off as if on a matter of life or death in response to the messages. But it seems as if these overwinter chaps are especially subject to them in the first warm days. Later, an angle wing came down into my valley but he did not stay long enough for me to find out which of the Graptas he was, whether the question mark or the comma. Grapta interrogationis, or Grapta comma. I should call him the comma, for his stop was of the shortest, if it were not that my doubt of his identity leaves me with the query. The rush of his business was even greater than that of Parameus Huntera, and with one flip of his crooked-edged wings, he was out of sight. Three other butterflies I saw during the day in the neighbourhood of my sunny hollow. One the Morning Cloak, Vanessa Antiopa, I always expect to see on warm days in the sunny brown woods of April, and am rarely disappointed. Another which took the air from the hillocked ground of the two-century-old cornfield, I thought to be Vanessa Jalbum, more familiarly known, perhaps, as the Compton Tortoise. I would have been glad to know this, surely, for this butterfly is rather rare here. But bless me, he went off over the hills at a rate that shamed the flippity angle wing. These dilly-dallying butterflies of the poet, indeed. They are the busiest creatures of the whole woodland. Last of all was a little red chap that shot through the rich gold of the sunlight quite like an agitated bullet, his motor doing its very prettiest with the muffler off, and both propellers roaring. Orville Wright could not have caught him. It was but a brief glimpse that I got, but I took him for one of the skippers, perhaps the silver-spotted, which is common here, though I have never seen one so early before. He was burly, thick-necked, short-winged, which is characteristic of Hesperids. I would have been glad to know what these early butterflies find to eat. Certain flowers are now in bloom. But you never find a mourning cloak or a hunter, a question mark or a painted lady fluttering about them. The bees are in the willow blossoms and the elder catkins after pollen. The maples are in bloom. You can find hypatias and violets, chickweed, crocus, snowdrop and, I dare say, dandelions in blossom. And almost every day some new shrub or shy herb sends perfumed invitations out on the messenger winds. Yet I find April butterflies most partial to such sunny spots as the ancient cornfield, where pines and scrub oaks will give no hint of blossom for weeks to come, and only dry lichens seem to flourish on the twig and chip encumbered earth. Here the dainty cladonias thrive, the brown-fruited lifting tiny cups to the sun, while the scarlet crested help this and the fringed variety to make crisp, tiny fairy gardens that will show you great beauty if you put your nose to the earth as the butterfly does in looking at them. Perhaps these earliest spring butterflies sip from brown cups or draw from frost-moistened scarlet crests some potent elixir which warms the cockles of their wee hearts during the frigid nights of our massachusetts aprils. I hope so. I never catch them sipping honey at this time from any of the recognized sources. Perhaps the full flow of sap which is fairly bursting the young limbs of the trees now leaks enough to give syrup for the tasting, and they are thus more fortunate than their brethren, who will come later and dance attendance on lilac and milkweed. Maple sugar is better than honey. There will be blossoms enough for them in the little hollow by and by, though at first it looked so brown and sere. Little by little, after my initiation at the antenna of Pyramus Huntera, I began to see them. A rosette of green under my elbow, perhaps, or a serrate tip further on. All under the brown grass, the green rosettes of biennials and perennials have waited all winter long for a time like this. Out of the cores of growth built with slow labor in the increasing chill of autumn, they are now sending new leaves, one after another, in rapid succession. That top the brown grasses and begin to wreathe them with the tender green of spring. There is joy in their very colouring as they stretch up to meet the enfolding warmth of the sun. Here, an early buttercup waves a cleft and somewhat pineate hand to me with jaunty assurance, though in the heart of its cluster is as yet no sign of the ascending stem that is to bear the glossy, yellow bloom aloft. Dandelion leaves shakes their notched spares all about, proud that their buds are already visible, though still tucked down in the heart of the plant and showing no sign of yellow. Here are the wee, strawberry-like leaves of the chinquafoil pale counterpart of the buttercup to which it looks up in gentle envy and admiration. The cinquefoil follows hard upon the heels of the violet, and already its buds are eager to be up and open. The linear root leaves of aster and goldenrod sit snug and green, growing a bit, but in no hurry to appear above the brown vegetation of last year their watch comes late, and there is no reason for them to be stirring thus early, getting ahead of the lazy wood grasses that have hardly begun to put out tiny spears that eventually will stab through the old fog and help the others to make a new tapestry carpet from the empty woodland spaces. Loveliest of all these now, and indeed, the most germane to the spot is the mulian. All winter long it has sat serene and self-sufficient, under the snow, armour encased in pellucid ice, or in the bare, bitter nights, when the stars of heaven were one solid curascation of silver and the still cold bit very deep. Clad in currency like the pioneer. Its homespun clothing has defied the weather, holding the cold away from its thin leaf with all this padding of matted wool, which makes the plant seem so rough and coarse. In the summer, it will defy the fierce heat of the July sun with the same armour, sitting here with its feet in the burning sand and its tall spike tossing back the sunshine with a laugh from its golden efflorescence. Like the pioneers, the mullion came from the old world, well fitted to bear the rigours and defy the dangers of the new. Like him, it took root, and its seeds hold the land in the rough places, brave and beautiful, though rough-coated, tender at heart, and helpful always. So, when the sun has gone over the western ridge, and the north wind scouts have again mustered courage to invade the place. I leave the little hollow to the wilderness that still enfolds dreams of the one-time occupant. In its sheltered nooks, some of the day's golden warmth will remain, even until the sun comes again. I cannot tell where my busy butterflies will spend the night, but if I were one of them, I should flip back into the dooryard of the Pioneer's homestead and cuddle down in the great heart of one of those rosettes of murian leaves, there to slumber, warm and serene, wrapped to the eyes in its blankets of soft wool. April Showers At nightfall, the wind ceased. Ashamed, perhaps, of its prolonged violence, and we felt the soft presence of April all about. Someone had suddenly wrapped the world in a protecting mantle of perfumed dreams. Hitherto, it had been struggling to realize spring, succeeding here and there indeed, but always against cold disfavor and sullen opposition. Now. In a breath almost, joys and relaxations had come to all outdoor creatures, and the air itself was suffused with tears of relief that brimmed over and made little laughing patterns on bare twigs and brown grass. Till then, we had had no green of spring. The woodland world had been pink and amber and full of soft yearnings of colour in hope and promise. Flowers had struggled bravely forth here and there, but they had smiled patiently on a land brown with pasture grass of last year. Yet in a night, the full warmth of April fondness and her tears of joy at being really home again changed all that. Under the patter of wee showers, the wan grasses of last year laid weary heads upon the black earth beneath them and went to sleep, while in their place sprang the lush green spears of this year, glinting back a million joyous facets to the next morning sun that thus seemed to sprinkle all things with gleam of jewels. They came very softly at first. In the black dust, these April showers, growing out of the air so close to my cheek that their touch upon it was infinitely fine and soothing, thus the dew touches the grass on still nights in summer. To be alone in the pasture on such a night is to become one with all the primal gentleness of the universe. I could feel the happiness of the pasture shrubs and the perennial herbs and germinating annuals growing now on the warm bosom of Mother Earth, tucked away beneath the perfumed robe of an April night. The night before the cold sky was blown miles high in the air by the rough winds, the pasture people sighed and shrank and shivered. The night out of which April showers were to be born descended like a benediction and swathed all humble things in caressing warmth that was tremulous with moisture and perfume. With the rain came gentle woodland sprites, and while it played them a merry, ghostly tune, they worked in harmony. They pressed the one brown grass lovingly down, and patted the black earth over it till it went to sleep. They pulled lustily at the germinating blades, and in their labour, there under the darkness, they painted out in a night the brown of last year with the verdant pigment of this. They hammered and pried at the tough, varnished outer husks of buds, and finally worked them open and began unfolding the soft yellow-green of the young leaves within. Thus, the tips of huckleberry twigs, which had given a soft shade of wine red to the pasture all winter long, lost this tint and burgeoned into palest green, and the shad bush buds began to shake loose their racems of blossom. The little people worked in squads and showers played their merry tune, hither and yon as they laboured. All through the night, the fresh smell of the open pores of earth met you everywhere, and moist air built upon this all other odours and carried them very far. An open kitchen door in the distance let out not only a rainbow-edged blur of yellow light, but the smell of fresh-baked bread calling on the table before being put away in the big stone crock in the pantry by some belated New England housewife. With the lullaby roar of the distant brook came the odour of the willow blossom, and with a shift of wind the faint resinous perfume of the pinewood. The darkness which blots outlines from the sight leaves the location of things to the other senses which serve faithfully. Scent and sound are as apprehensive as sight. Often, walking in the darkness, one may feel faintly the obscure workings of a sense which is none of these, whereby he dodges a tree trunk or a fence corner which he feels is there. Yet, through none of the five ordinary senses, the darkness gives us antennae. The April showers touch with caressing fingers the chords of all things and bring music from them, each according to its kind. In the open forest, under deciduous trees, the dead leaves thrummed a ghostly dirge like that of the dead march in Saul. Winter ghosts marched to it in solemn procession out of the woodland. Memories of sleet and deep snow, ice storm, and heart-breaking frost tramped soggily in sullen procession over the misty ridge and on northwards towards the barren lands to the north of Hudson's Bay. Thrilling through this solemn march below, I heard the laughing fantasia of young drops upon burgeoning twigs above, dirge and ditty softening in distance to a mystic music, a rune of the ancient earth. In the open pasture, the tune changed again. It was there a chirpy crepitation that presaged all the tiny, cheerful insects whose songs will make May nights merry. These, no doubt, take their first music lessons from the patter of belated April showers on the grass roofs of their homes. But it was down on the pond margin that I found the most perfect music. Slender mists danced to it, fluttering softly up from the margin, swaying together in ecstasy, and floating away in a grey dreamland of delight. It was the same tune, with quaint, syncopated variations, that the budding twigs and the brown pasture grasses had given forth, but more sprightly and with a bell-like tinkle, more clear and fresh than any other sound that can be made. This tintenabulation of falling globules ringing against their kindred water. Every drop danced into the air again on striking, and in the mellow glow of an obscure twilight I could see the surface, stippled with pearling light. Then through it all came a new song, the first soloist of the night, the first of his kind of the season, thrilling along, dreamy, heart-stirring cadence of happiness the love call of the swamp tree frog. As the pattering music of the April showers on the waiting land is a rune of the ancient earth, so the love song of the swamp tree frog dreams down the years to us all, the way from the Carboniferous age. When the coal measures were forests of tree ferns, and the first men paddled through streaming shallows in their shade. The swamp tree frog was a tree frog instead, and sang his soothing song from their branches. Since then, he has degenerated, and has lost most of the adhesive power of the tiny discs on fingers and toes. He no longer clings readily to trees, and is but an awkward climber. So, too, The webbing between his toes has nearly vanished, and he is not a strong swimmer. He haunts the shallows of the swamps and the sunny pools on the margin of the deep cove. Perhaps he knows that he is degenerate, and that his safety lies mainly in silence and obscurity, for he sings rarely except in the first heyday of spring when the air is full of soft mists and warmth that stirs the deep-lying memories of the Carboniferous Age. He is a beautiful fellow, hardly more than an inch long, often flesh-colored and with coppery iris tints that should make the mouths of frog-eating creatures water. It is for desire of him, I believe, that the pickerel haunt that various shallows at this time of year, where you may see them of an evening, with their back fins sticking out like the latisse sails of a Chinese junk. I do not believe there is anywhere to be heard a dreamier or more soothing lullaby than that sung by the swamp tree frogs of a misty April night to the tinkling accompaniment of showers pattering upon the dancing surface of the pond. It begins in a sigh, swells till it stirs a memory, and dies away in a dream of its own happiness. All the warm, soothing night the swamp tree frog sang, and the showers made music for the labouring sprites, and when the morning came, it was to a world new-clothed in all Easter finery. The raindrop sprites had beaten and relaid the pasture carpets that had been so brown with the dust of last year, and now they were so clean and had such a soft, green nap that it was a renewed pleasure to walk on them. Green too was the wear of many of the pasture shrubs, and the fripperies of the shadbush made the more sober ones turn heads to look at her again. Already she had creamed the sage green of her delicate gown with the white of opening buds and the berry bushes and the wild cherry and the viburnums and all the other early flowering shrubs felt a touch of their own coming joy in just looking at her. Loveliest of all these pasture folk was the sweet gale, if you would know how beautiful Just Catkin can make a slender, modest creature. You should hasten into the pasture now and take note of her. Until last night, you would have passed her by without noting, so modest and reticent she is. The other two members of her family have been for months more in evidence. The sweet fern keeps some of her last year's leaves still. And as you pass, tosses a bouquet of perfume to you that you may know she is by. The bayberry holds blue candles to the wind all winter, and the incense of them carries far. But the sweetest gale is too modest and sigh for such things. She just sits quiet and unobserved, and thinks holy thoughts, and because she does so, it seems as if all the warmth and kindness of April Sun and April Showers touches her first. The catkins of the sweet fern were still hard and varnished, and had not cracked a smile this morning after the night of April Showers. Not a candle of the bayberry had melted or shown flame in all this softness and warmth. Yet there stood the gentle, sweet gale, all aflame with soft amber and pale gold, a veritable burning bush of beauty. There is no perfume from these blossoms, so gently shy and self-contained is the plant. Both the bayberry and sweet fern will woo you from a distance with rich aroma, but only after the leaves have come and then only if you bruise them will you get a message from the shy heart of the sweet gale. On such a morning, it seems as if all the birds were here, flitting back and forth through the soft, blue, early mists, and singing for pure joy in the soft air and gentle warmth. For the first time, the robins sang as if they meant it, not in great numbers, though there are lesions of them here, but enough that you can easily forecast the power of the full chorus, which will tune up a little later. Blackbirds and bluebirds carolled, and song sparrows fairly split their throats, and now and then a flicker would sit up on a top bough, clear his throat, throw his chest, and pipe up tucker, 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 then a bash at the noise he had made, going off on tiptoe, very much ashamed, as well he might be. Not a fox sparrow could I see, I think they went on the day before, but a kingfisher was flying from cove to cove, springing that cheerful cry of his, which sounds as if someone were rattling a stick on his slats. A meadowlark piped a clear whistle from the top of a pitch pine, then alternately fluttered and sailed down into the grass for an early bite. The chipping sparrow swelled his little grey throat and trilled a homely, contented note, and there was a clamour of blue jays as the hour grew late. I find the blue jay a lazy chap, no early morning revelry for him. Breakfast is a serious matter, not to be entered into lightly or with chattering. Later in the day, he is apt to be noisy enough, though he never sings in public. The nearest he ever comes to it is when, in a crowd of good fellows, he gives you an imitation of some other bird, for the blue jay is a good deal of a mimic but it is always burlesque, and it rarely gets beyond the first few notes before a jeering chorus of his companions cuts it off. Nor do you ever know whether they are jeering at him or the bird he is burlesquing. I fancy it does not matter to them as long as they have a chance to jeer. The crows are rather silent now, though occasionally there is a dreadful tarot over a love affair which does not run smooth. Crows are such canny scotchmen of the woods that you would hardly expect them to throw caution to the winds and have a riot and a duel with much loud talk over a love affair, but it does happen. Among the pines a day or two ago, I heard a great screaming and a scolding, cries of anger and distress, and then, before I could reach the scene, silence. When I got there, all I saw were two crows slipping shamefacedly away behind the treetops. I thought it merely a lover's quarrel, but the next day I found beneath the pines, not far from the spot, a handsome young crow dandy, dead. It puzzled me a bit. He bore no marks of shot, but seemingly had died by violence. He was a stout youngster and had been in the prime of his life and figure. This morning, when all the soft glamour of the spring seemed made for lovers, and many of the birds were very happy about it, I heard another crow quarrel going on and was mean enough to spy on it. There was a lady, very demure, and there were two lovers, anything but demure. Neither could get near enough to the lady to croak soft words of love in her ear, for the other immediately flew at him in a rage. The two tore about among the trees, hurling bad words at one another. It was distinct profanity. They towered high in the air, and dove perilously one after the other back into the woods again, screaming reckless odes. Now and then they came together, and one or the other yelled with pain. It lasted but a few minutes, but it was a very hot scrimmage. Then one of them evidently had enough, and had abandoned the fight, taking refuge in a thick fir tree near me. Not one of the three minded my presence. The victor went back to his lady-love on mincing wings, and though I could not see them, I knew that he was received with open favour, for the cooing and cawing that followed was positively uncanny. As a reckless freebooter, a wise and jovial latter-day Robin Hood of the woods, I liked the crow, but his love-making voice. Dear me, one of Macbeth's witches might address the cauldron in the same tone. Evidently, the discomfited rival thought so too, for he began to jaw in an undertone and flew grumbling away, mostly on one wing. I have no direct evidence, of course, but I think my dead crow came to his untimely end in one of these duels between rival lovers. I was glad to leave the crows behind me for once, and then, in the full sunshine of the later morning, I chanced upon a tree full of goldfinches. It was a tree full, also, of most delightful music. Each bird was vying with the other in a spring song that was more in tune with the surroundings than any ever written by Bach or Schumann, a perfect outgiving of blossoming delight. The birds themselves have just come into new bloom. Like the sweet gale, they seem to have put on new colours of gold almost in a night, for they made yellow gleams that were like blossoms all about on the bare twigs, their black wings making the colour more vivid by contrast. Yesterday it was, or was it the day before? That these lovely singers were going about in sober brown, like sparrows. Now suddenly, they are splashes of tropic sunshine. It is their mating plumage which they will wear until late August which puts them in brown again. They are so happy about it, and their rich, variable songs are such a delight that I am glad they do not quit wooing. And go to nest building until late June, the latest, I think, of all our birds. And while I listened to the goldfinches, a tiny bit of sky fell. It lighted on a leaf by me, and expanded its wings, and enjoyed the full sun. It was one of the least of butterflies, and one of the loveliest, the common blue, the winter form so-called because it comes thus in April, from a chrysalid that has passed the rigours of winter successfully. Like the blossoming sweet gale, the song of the swamp tree frog, and the gold of the goldfinch's plumage, this tiny, fearless bit of blue is a seal of the actual soft presence of the spring which comes only when the April showers have made her calling and election sure. To be sure, we might have a whiff of snow yet, but it will be only the dust blown far from the fleeing feet of those winter ghosts, now scuffing the tundra up where the Saskatchewan empties into Hudson's Bay.